0: The value of something is an interesting concept. For example, you have the objective value of something, what it uh, is worth, say, in the marketplace. Last Monday, as I began to write this message, I uh, looked and saw what an ounce of gold was going for, and I think it was about $1,938.57 per ounce gold standard. Then I saw that a pair of Air Retro number four Jordans would cost $1,006 for those shoes. And then I saw that a, for a Porsche 911, that would be hundred and fourteen thousand dollars sticker value. And then I saw that an acre of rich farmland in the great state of Michigan is $5,850. Per acre. That is the objective value of those items. However, even if I had the money to buy those things, not all of those things would mean that to me. So you not only have objective value, you have subjective value. Now, maybe if I came into a lot of money, I might buy gold, probably not at $1,900 an ounce. And I definitely would not buy those Air Jordan 4 Retros. I'm just fine with my $100 tractor supply specials. Pretty stylish, aren't they? All right. I would not buy uh, a Porsche 911, but if I I came into the money, I probably would buy a nice big six-cylinder hunting truck. If anybody wants to donate that to the Ministry of Hunting, I would be more than agreeable with that. I would be interested in the farmland possibly if I had some money, but that, that's subjective value. So you have objective value of something, what it is intrinsically worth. You have subjective value, what is it worth to me? But then you also have surprising value. When you have something, maybe you've owned it for a while, and man, you all of a sudden have this epiphany, this is worth a whole lot more than I ever anticipated. There was a lady in New Jersey, it was in like the 2010-11 time frame, who was going uh, to a garage sale, and she found a little ceramic bowl, and she paid a whopping total of $3 for it, only to discover this was a bowl dating from the 10th century, uh, the Song Dynasty of Northern China, and it sold at a Sotheby's auction for $2.2 million in 2013. That's quite an increase in profit there. And then a few years later, a guy was likewise just kind of going to a garage sales, yard sales. And for $2.48, he bought a salt and pepper shaker. And what he thought was a cheap replica of the Declaration of Independence only to find out it dated from 1820 as one of the certified copies of the Declaration of Independence. And I think that he sold for about $450,000. There is then surprising value. Well, the big idea this morning, the point of the two brief parables I just read is this. Jesus is supremely valuable. Valuable. That's the title of this message and the one point of this message. I'll have three applications, but that's the, that's the title. Simply, Jesus is supremely value, valuable. Objectively, Jesus is supremely valuable. That is, he is worth more valuable than anything else or anyone else anywhere for all time. Full stop. And that's on period, as I say. He is supremely valuable. Subjectively, one way to look at salvation is coming to see Jesus as just that, right? It's coming to see him as supremely valued. And that begins and is marked, boom, by the surprising discovery that Jesus is just not a religious icon in the pantheon of religious figures, Buddha, Confucius, Jesus, no, 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 that he is supremely valuable as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is worth abandoning everything for that you might truly follow him. That's where we're going this morning. Now, here's the point. The point is not, let me be clear, that you can buy your way into heaven, right? The point isn't that you can't purchase your way into the kingdom of God. The point is not that you can somehow ante up enough money or works to get your salvation. No, 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 no. The Bible is clear from front to back that redemption is all by grace. And it's based on the perfect life of Jesus, his sacrificial death in our place, and then in his irrefutable bodily resurrection. That is what redeems us. That's the gospel. We sing a a gospel song. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. So the point is you can't buy your salvation. The point of the parable is this. Here it is. That the one who did all of that to bring us into God's kingdom, he is supremely valuable. That he is worth more than anything else or anyone else or all that we have. And on top of that, he is worth leaving everything for if necessary in order to follow him. Or as the one point entitled this message puts it, Jesus is supremely valuable. And that's what I want you to walk out of here with. In fact, would you say that with me? Jesus is supremely valuable. Now, let's see how this text puts that on blast. Parable number one, just verse 44, treasure in a field, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, context, context, context. This was from a day in which you couldn't just roll up to a Comerica bank teller. I don't even know if people even do that anymore. Does anyone use a teller anymore? That's so yesterday. But it was also a day in which you couldn't upload a check on your smartphone to Bank of America. In other words, this was a, this was a day in which they did not have banks as we know banks. It was not just conspiracy theorists who would hide all their money in their mattress. They would. Actually, not their mattress, and most uh, historians say not even in their houses because robbery was a big thing. People were pushed to and fro off land very easily, just like today in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world. They would often hide their valuables in some kind of box in a field. That sounds strange to us, but that's how they did it quite commonly, Because if they got driven off the land, at least they wouldn't have their stuff pilfered and maybe they'd come back later and get it. And I I never made the connection, but do you know Jesus told a parable that's based on this cultural practice? Remember that, the parable of the talents? Remember the first guy, he gets five talents, which was a currency of money. And what does he do? He invests it and he gets five more. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Then you have another guy, he's given, this is Matthew 25, we'll get there next year. Guy's given two talents, he invests it wisely, and he then reaps the profits of two more talents. And Jesus says to him, likewise, enter into the joy of the Lord. Then there's the guy who's just given one talent. You remember what that guy does with his talent? He buries it into a field. That's what he's talking about. And by the way, because he did not multiply it, he says something far different than entering into the joy of the Lord. But but we'll get there in several months. Now, whether this guy, again, it's a parable, so we're trying to use some sanctified conjecture here, but we can imagine perhaps the guy being uh, given a job of plowing the field, and boom, he comes up against something hard in the ground and discovers the treasure. Or maybe he's taking the same shortcut he's taken a hundred times, and the rain has eroded on that path Uh, the soil causing some kind of treasure to emerge. He discovers a treasure, and as we read, he sells all that he has to buy the field with the treasure. Now, sometimes people say, that doesn't seem so, what, right or ethical. I mean, come on. If he knows the treasure's there, we're trying to hoodwink the, the landowner. Well, let me just say this. For one, it's a parable, okay? And for another, I would add that in a day in which people, land changed hands so quickly, who even knows if the current landowner was actually the one who originally owned the treasure? It could be three or four people later, earlier. And apparently, this is crazy. It was such a frequent cultural practice. The scribes had a debate about whether if such a thing happened, if you found treasure in a field, say you're plowing or walking through it, did it belong to the finder or did it belong to the one who had the title deed to the land? And guess which way they slightly leaned from my reading? To the finder, yeah. But there's a little caveat there. If the finder was a servant, plowing for his master, then it would go to the master. That's how it went. But in the end, if what he was doing was really ethically wrong, he would have just taken the, taken the treasure right there, right? Because probably nobody's looking, just kind of put it in his pocket or carried it away, and away he's gone. So the, the point is not all that. The, the, he's not trying to make an ethical point. He's trying to make a point of value through telling this parable. And what this guy does, again, we're using sanctified conjecture, it's a parable. He, he tracks down the owner. Maybe he does, goes to City Hall and does a title search. And he finds out who the guy is, and we're gonna come back to these two words later, in his joy. And then eight words which put together are quite powerful, showing his faith. He goes and sells all that he has. He is all in for this treasure in the field. Now, what's what's the point of this parable ultimately? We said it already together. What's the point? Jesus is supremely valuable the king is supremely valuable being in the kingdom is supremely valuable so that's parable 1 parable 2 the pearl of great price or great value again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it now the merchant in this parable the idea he was likely a wholesaler he would he would buy stuff and then he would sell it for probably a handsome prophet. In this case, he is purchasing pearls. And by the way, in the first parable, the guy stumbles upon the treasure. And some people stumble upon Christ, right? They get invited to a service or somebody on campus shares the gospel with them. They weren't really looking, right? Boom, they stumble upon a treasure. And for other people, they're, they're seeking. They're, they're actively seeking. This guy is actively seeking treasure, in this case, the treasure of expensive pearls. And they were expensive. They were very expensive. Very One, because they're very rare. And number two, because it was very dangerous to harvest pearls. This was a pre-scuba gear era, right? So I, I heard it described one way by this one guy. He said somebody would go to 20 to 40 feet of water. That's pretty deep. Uh, he'd be in a skiff, like a flat-bottom boat. He would tie a bunch of rocks to him go overboard, bo- 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 go all the way down, 20 feet, 30, they say upwards of 40 feet. Again, no eye gear that we would know of. And kind of grope around in the muddy uh, bottom of the water there. And when he found a pearl, would put it in a pouch, or if it was next to, uh, fixed to a rock, he would pry it off. And as he has his, almost his last uh, breath, he, he ascends back to the surface, 20, 40 feet, he has to cut the strings first, attached to the weights. They would pull him up into the boat. He'd gather his breath. He would shuck that oyster, get out some hot sauce. No, that's not what he was doing. He would see if there's a pearl there, right? And that would be his employment, very dangerous employment. They would do this in the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, the Pacific Ocean, and, and all the rest. Pearls were really the thing back in the day. Cleopatra said to have two massive pearls that were made into earrings that would be worth in today's dollars, millions of dollars. Then I read this, that really wealthy and pretentious people to flaunt their wealth when they had a big party, they would have one of their pearls dissolved in uh, in, in vinegar. And then once it was dissolved, they would pour that into the wine canter. And then they would share the wine together, just showing off their wealth, drinking pearls. That's You guys are looking at me like, yeah, no, no, that's crazy, right? But that's what went on in that place, in that era. Now, this guy finds, and he knows pearls because he buys them for a living. He finds a pearl of such great value that he sells everything he had, and he had a lot, and the lot he had was very expensive in order to buy it. Point is that Jesus is what? supremely valuable. Now, never, never in the history of Restore did we get to application so quickly, but here we are, okay? And I've got three of them. One has to do with our emotions. The second has to do, that'll be the longest one. Next one will be quite a bit shorter, actions. And then finally, the third one will have to do with evaluation. So emotion, action, evaluation. Here it is. First application, a genuine relationship with Christ involve, involves emotion, okay? It involves emotion. It involves your heart. Now, there is often in doing uh, evangelism in just in American Christianity, and I suppose across the world, very bad tactics used of manipulation to get people to decide for Christ, right? You know, 27 stanzas of just as I am. Man, I'm coming down on the 26th standard just to shut that thing down, okay, all right? Or there's there's a church uh, down North Carolina, pretty popular, And what they do is when they have an altar call and baptisms, they already have like 40 or 50 of their own people prepped to come up front, you know, to get the the water flowing and to kind of like engineer decisions with emotional manipulation. Look at all these people responding. Maybe I should respond too, right? Along with that, there is the mechanization of manufacturing decisions for Christ. They're often twins of shallow emotionalism and mechanization, you know, hey, why don't you pray this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, okay, keep praying after me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a what? Sinner, just say it. All right, I know I'm a sinner. And you go all the way through. And at the end, hey, you prayed that prayer. Congratulations, you are now a child of God. Welcome into the family of God. You never, ever should doubt your salvation again. When that person was as emotionally invested As someone debating, say, at Chick-fil-A, whether to get the regular chicken sandwich or the barbecue or the spicy. By the way, it's the spicy all the way. But that, you know, that kind of emotional investment. And and by the way, what I'm not prescribing, because Scripture does not, is some kind of cookie-cutter outward display of emotion. In fact, Pastor Nick preached so well two weeks ago on the parable of the four soils. And the one soil, the second soil, there was a lot of emotion, Right? and yet it was shallow emotion, and it was not true regeneration. Rather, what I'm talking about is a deep, inward emotion that wants and values Jesus more than anything else. And as a result, at any cost, whatever it might be. Lose my family to follow Christ? Well, I wouldn't want to, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's worth it. Lose my money, my life savings, my vocation, my job, my 401k and all the rest. Wouldn't want to, but yeah, he's worth it. Lose my reputation with my friends, with my peers, with my colleagues. Wouldn't want to, but yeah, he's worth it. And that's important to note, that one, because we live in it. It used to be making a confession of faith in Christ would gain you cultural currency. Today, it's the other way around, isn't it? Oh, oh, you're, you're one of those. Well, what kind of Christian are you? You believe that book? You believe Jesus is the only way? Yes. You believe that, that people without Christ are going to hell? Yes, yes. Those are all things that Jesus said you must be willing to lose, to follow him. You, you can track down the verses. I mean, those are explicitly things he said. Sometimes he uses a, a Hebrew literary device of hate. You actually, he says, must be willing to hate what? Your family in comparison to how much you must love God, which smacks us right in the jaw of our family idolatry, right? Doesn't it? Apart from Maybe losing your family, probably won't, but in some places you will, absolutely. Or losing wealth or income or job or reputation, you must be willing to turn from your sin. The very thing Jesus came to save us from, right? And by the way, that is not teaching that you make yourself right with God through self purification, not at all. It simply is the heart of someone who was truly embracing the one who came to purify us from all sin and make us zealous for good works. All of this is fueled not by, well, I guess I have to, but man, I get to. When a heart is seized by the supreme value of Jesus, You don't think you have any of that as a sacrifice. You're not like, I have had to sacrifice so much to follow. Never mind this, though. Never mind what I've had to sacrifice. Let's talk about you. Yeah, okay. Pretentious one. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that is not the heart of someone who has been gripped by the suppressing uh, supreme value of following Jesus. Rather with Paul, we say, now this is Philippians chapter three, verse seven, through eight. you might want to flip over there. Can you say this? But whatever, Philippians three, verse seven, eight, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He say, well, he is talking about loss. Hold on, hold on. Look how he phrases that loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung, one translation. Figure that out. Rubbish right here. In order that I may gain Christ. That is the heart of someone who's been gripped by the supreme value of Jesus, that Jesus is supremely valuable. And it's worth noting, since we're in Philippians, and we won't read the rest of that chapter, that Paul, this important church family, ditches, not just as his righteousness, but also as his reputation and as his motivation as well, both his religious performance and his ethnicity. And that's important because those are two things that I hear Christians put a lot of clout on in the relationship with God. And the way I know that is they put, they put a, a word in front of Christian, or a couple words in front of Christian. Now, we are strongly pro-life here. But when someone says they're a pro-life Christian, maybe you're telling on yourself about something. You... Don't get me wrong, the Bible will very clearly drive you to be pro life, right? But we're Christians. Or sometimes people say that maybe the theological uh, slant here, like I'm a, I'm a Reformed Baptist Christian or I'm a Reformed Christian. Well, that's good. I think the Bible will lead you in that direction. Nonetheless, you're a Christian. Or sometimes people will talk about their ethnicity. I, I, I'm a black Christian. Well, praise God, we're fearfully and wonderfully made in so many different ways. And we acknowledge that sometimes people have been devalued because of that, for sure. But at the end of the day, we're all Christians, right? That's who we are, made in various ways by God's grace. Now, this this ditching of where he found his righteousness and where he found his reputation and where he found his motivation was all sourced in this, because he found Jesus supremely valuable above all things, right? That's it. That's it. And this is not just a glancing emotion that you feel during a song (laughs) or whatever, but a lasting conviction that Jesus Christ is indeed supremely valuable. And a lot of people fall away from Jesus because they never found him supremely valuable. I'm just going to be honest with you. Maybe it was emotion they were feeling. Maybe it wasn't mechanization or shallow manipulation, but, but, but they just kind of put, oh yeah, this is going to be cool. But they, they didn't really see him for who he is. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a fascinating story. He was doing a week of meeting somewhere in, in Britain. And it was a Tuesday night. He had preached. And on Wednesday, he's just taking a walk through the little village there. And a man comes up to him and says, oh, Dr. Jones, what a powerful message that was last night. But I wish you'd had an invitation because I would have responded. And Jones said, well, nothing keeping you from responding right here now. And he says, oh, no, I'm not really feeling that way anymore. And Jones said, well, if what you're feeling right last night didn't last until this morning, you are not ready to be saved. Old preachers used to say, I try as hard as I can to talk somebody into coming to Christ, and then I try as hard as I can to talk them out of coming to Christ because there's a lot of fake conversions. They were making the point that true faith wants Jesus at any cost because he is supremely valued. Nothing will stand in the way. And I just highlight those two words. That I said I was going to come back to you from verse 44, in joy. In joy. How does he come? Why does he say everything? Grudgingly okay, I guess I'll have to do it. No, what does it say? With joy, with joy, in joy. Family, our message as Christians is not this. It's not, you know, you should stop searching for happiness and come be miserable with us dour religious people. That's not the gospel. Rather, and I'm using a little C.S. Lewis here, we'll come back to this in a few weeks in our Christmas series on joy, so I won't give you all those mud pie quotes and all that. But our message is, you're just not looking for happiness hard enough because true happiness, true joy, true shalom is found in Jesus Christ and his unrivaled supremacy. And when we subjectively going back to the introdu- into the introduction, come to embrace what is objectively true, that Jesus really is, in every way, shape, and form, supremely valuable. You know what happens in our heart? A heart begins to go out to Christ in joy. It begins to go out to him in joy. I mean, think about it. I'm trading anxiety for assurance. Not that you will never battle that, but, but that was made at the cross. I'm trading death for life. I'm trading hell for for heaven. I'm trading redemption, rebellion for redemption. I'm trading shame for security. I'm trading sin for salvation. And you're more passionate about a spicy chicken sandwich Now listen, whether you stumble upon Jesus, and the end of the day I think that's really us because he, he's the one that draws us towards him, or you're in that place where you're actively seeking him. When he is truly found, it is not cerebral alone. It is celebratory. It is not just intellectual. It is emotional and deeply so. It's not just in your head. It goes down to your heart. Sometimes athletes will say in a post-game interview, and sometimes they're sincere, and it's cool when it is, and sometimes it's just kind of Christianese, but they'll say, i like to personally thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good when it's from the heart, but wouldn't it be cool for someone to stand up and say, i like to personally thank my Lord and Savior and treasure. Jesus Christ, that would be these parables right here. So can you say, Colossians 3, verse 4, this was part of our reading this morning, that Christ is my life, that Christ is my life. A genuine relationship with Christ involves emotion. Second of all, and much more briefly, a genuine relationship with Christ also involves action. Now, in a sense, I've already preached this point in preaching the first point because our outward actions are almost all the time, if not all the time, rooted in our inward emotions. Or to state it slightly another way, our inward emotions are always reflected by our outward actions. Would you agree? That our direction flows out of our emotion. That kind of what we do flows out of what and who we want. So let me cut to the chase. I want to emphasize that the result of truly seeing, tasting, treasuring Christ as supremely valuable is changed action. In the parables, you saw the deliberate action. They go and buy everything. They they sell everything they have to buy all the money they can, to get all the money they can in order to buy the great treasure or the pearl of great price. There is lots of action verbs in these short parables. This action begins with a decision. As much as I rue emotionalism and the mechanization of genuine decisions for Christ, people, you got to come to Christ. You have to. You don't get you don't become a Christian by osmosis not how it works. You don't become a Christian because your mom's a Christian or your dad's a Christian or, or a brother or sister's a Christian. you don't become a Christian um, because you come to church. you don't beca- baptism will not make you a Christian. No, you become a Christian by repenting of your sin and calling upon Christ Christian. Christ to save you, and the Bible says when you make that decisive step of action, you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So, is there anybody here like that? You could have been in church all your life and have some, you know, have some Christian stuff, some Christian apparatuses in your life. Have a Bible, you can highlight it, but you must turn to Christ yourself. The Bible talks about a new birth. It's the spirit that's behind that new birth, but that new birth gives evidence by a baby crying out to God. Just like Calvin, as much as he's a good baby, is gonna cry out to his mom and dad. Why? Because he's alive. Are you crying out to the Lord for salvation? You ever done that? And then I would add, not only does action begin with a decision, action continues with a lifelong decision step after step of deliberate direction or intentional direction. What I mean is this, as you and I, if, we've, if we really become alive in Christ, Calvin, is, Calvin did not know he'd be the center of uh, so much in this illustration here, but in God's grace, Calvin will continue to grow, right? He's going to soil a few diapers, right? He's going to cause his parents to have some sleepless hours. He's going to bring them great joy, He's gonna to learn to walk. It'll be a big thing when he learns how to walk with the assistance of a couch, right? And then he'll, you know, weevils wobble, but they don't fall over. They, he will fall over and all that. And then he will grow, 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 grow into adulthood. That's a, that's a picture of a Christian, right? So as, as we have this new birth, and then we, we have that continued action of deliberate direction. In other words, as we walk with the Lord, as we walk with the Lord, and this will happen every stage and every season of your life, you're gonna have to part with certain things that don't reflect the glory of God, right? Uh, Lifestyle choices, priorities, positions on current affairs, sins. You are gonna have to depart from certain things to, to let them go because Jesus truly is supremely valuable. And his say carries a whole lot more weight than your say. And as you continue to walk these new steps, this new direction with Christ, not only will you let go of certain things, you actually embrace certain things because he's supremely valuable. I'm gonna embrace repentance. I'm gonna embrace faithfulness to church gatherings. I'm going to embrace evangelism. I'm going to embrace embrace prayer, all kinds of things. And I would just say to you as I close the second application, if your heart is truly hit with the surpassing value of Jesus, then your faith will indeed have feet. It won't be a dead profession of faith that makes you look like everybody else, only stamped with, oh, I prayed that prayer. Actually, you have been invaded by new life. He puts it this way in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. You could translate this way. Hey, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. For you've died, and your life is now hidden In Christ with God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then he goes on to talk about things you put off. I just talked about that. And things that you put on. Now, finally, third of all, a growing relationship with Christ involves involves evaluation. In other words, you're willing to step back and ask the Lord, How is my heart? My emotions? How is my walk my actions? And some people find it helpful to have trusted people around them, family members, friends who walk with you and know you, who you can say, hey, how do you think my, my heart is? How do you think my walk is? And hopefully you have friends around you who are willing to to say so even when you don't ask, because they love you and they care for you. Some people find it helpful to step back, time of of rest, time to reflect. In a sense, Paul's letters to the churches are basically asking the question, hey, church, how's your heart, your emotions for God? How's your walk, your steps for God? He gives doctrinal truth in each of his epistles. And then first three chapters, save Ephesians, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Second three chapters, hey, how's this making you feel? And how's this making you walk? I think of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when he says, examine yourselves, to the church at Corinth to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is the idea of evaluation. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And then the stronger words by Peter in 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Emotion, action, evaluation. I wanna close with three things. First of all, I I want you to personalize these parables. I want you, I'm going to read these parables on the fly in a different kind of way as if we are the person walking through the field, as if we're the merchant. And can you say, yeah, yeah, there's something in my heart that would amen that, that would say, yeah, that, that's not like I want it to be, but is in some way, shape, or form reflected in my heart. So here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which I found and then I covered up then in my joy, I went and sold all that I had and I bought that field. Can you say that? Can you say that? Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, when I found that pearl of great value, I went and sold all that I had and bought it. Can, can you see yourself reflected in the parable? I'm not asking, I'm not asking, can you doctrinally, precisely talk about Jesus as Lord? and Savior. He is those things. But what makes those things personal is He's your treasure too. He's your treasure. That you love Him, whom having not seen, you love. And though you not see Him now, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That absent flows. I get it. But do, do the words of Jesus come out of your mouth with those around you? Forget evangelism. It's just an overflow with those that live with you, that you walk with in life, friends, whatever does it come out? That might be a reflection of whether he is treasured to you. The second thing I want us to do, we're going to sing this song in just a second. Thank you for leading us, Brian, is you probably uh, sang this song before. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail pierced hand. And then the second stanza, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. Let's face it, sometimes we treasure what people think about us, right? Whole lot more than the glory of Christ. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. And faithfulness is clearly gonna be a sharp dividing line in this age. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. And we're gonna sing the rest of that later. So how 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 would you respond to that? And then finally, and this is kind of on the fly, but John and Katie did a great job uh, this last Wednesday of leading us in a special time of prayer devoted to the persecuted church. And they gave us a bunch of uh, examples across the world of persecuted Christians for us to pray about. And this was in my group. And I just want to read this to you because this, this dear martyr for the faith showed that Jesus truly was supremely valuable to him, not just objectively, but subjectively in him being faithful all all the way to the end. This was a Christian student murdered by former friends. October 26, 2023, Iraq. One day in May, 2023, an Iraqi pastor answered his phone, not knowing it would be the last call he would receive from a young Christian friend. On the line was a university student who had recently converted to Christ from Islam. Some of the student's former friends had arrived at his home saying, quote, we know about your new faith. We are going to give you a chance to come back, end quote. Now, the group told him he could not that he could claim to believe in any God he wanted, but he could not remain a Christian. They allowed him one phone call, which he called his pastor with. So he called his pastor who prayed for him and told him the decision was his all alone. The pastor also reminded him of the eternal hope and home awaiting all followers of Christ. The young man said he would share the good news of Christ with his former friends and remain faithful. He was executed for his faith the next day. The only person who can do that is a person who has Jesus Christ, not just as Lord, not just as Savior, but truly has those things because he, the heart of the matter, is their treasure. Is it your treasure? I'm so glad that our God is a saving God. It's a message of the gospel. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. Anyone. God is an equal opportunity Savior. And he would save you this afternoon, right now, if you would confess your sin and call upon Jesus. And if you would like to do that and you want some help just from Scripture, someone counseling with you, there'll be some people back at the AV booth, back left of this auditorium. But I'm so thankful that Jesus is not only a saving God, he's a reviving God. And maybe maybe what God wants to speak into your heart from this message is revival. To revive your heart so that the heart that is the emotions and the feet that is the actions of these parables would in fact be the heart and feet of your own life with Christ.